Hi folks, a little bit of housekeeping before we start this podcast. We are looking for your support. Uh, the way this podcast, this platform operates is basically we rely on you. We rely on listeners to help us keep it going. We don't have those ads, we don't have those sponsors and we do have unfortunately a requirement for me to ask you to support us. Uh, how you do that is you join us on patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. The link is in this podcast as you're listening to it now. All you got to do is push that little button and see if there's a level you're happy enough to help keep this project going and I wouldn't ask if we did really really need the support and it's not just a one-way street you get a ton of additional content for that um, right now there's about well I think it's over 1016 podcasts up there at the moment uh, conversation we had with Emma D'Souza on the events in the north the sectarian um, flashpoints and some of the issues around culture wars that are happening when people are really facing choices between eating and heating uh, there's also a brilliant conversation uh, with the two lads behind Exploding Heads the comedy duo that you probably would have seen on social media uh, that's already out there now on the Patreon feed and we've got more coming over this weekend the economist and writer with the Tribune magazine you would have seen her on Good Morning Britain uh, Grace Blakely has joined us to talk Enough is Enough uh, and I'm really looking forward to that also the lads from the ditch will be back this weekend to talk about what has happened or what has not happened in the onboard Planala and Robert Troy uh, how do we put these controversies we also have Keenan Brennan who has covered that from uh, a, from a long way back with uh, the Irish Examiner he will be joining us as well all of those will be available as quickly as I can turn them around on that Patreon feed please 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 consider joining us it really makes all the difference thanks for listening thanks for the support thanks for sharing uh, talk to you all very very soon Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope. I'm your host, Rory Hearn. I'm delighted to be joined on the podcast today by Dr. Patrick Bresnan, who is an assistant professor in Maynooth University in the Department of Geography, a longstanding colleague of mine and friend. Paddy, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rory. Yeah, good to talk to you. Yeah, listen, I'm looking forward to this. You have been you know, always in terms of your academic research um, and work you've done, you've, you know, always focused on intersections between the environment and society and economy um, and sustainability. Uh, you wrote an article which got um, quite a bit of traction in the Irish Examiner last week, um, where you wrote in yourself to the agriculture debate and the emissions targets of what happened uh, it's a very good piece i'd recommend people to have a look at it um titled agriculture and the emissions row how did we get here um, and you make the point that agriculture emissions have far less to do with individual farmers than with the enormous agri-food industry which has emerged due to irish and eu policies maybe you could take us through kind of some of the main points you're making in that article sure um well, I guess the, you know, and you, you alluded it to, to it there, the motivation for writing the article was that um, this sort of familiar, um, uh, you know, polarized debate or, or way of framing the debate between farmers and environmentalists, which has become really f- sort of, you know, familiar in the media, particularly, um, is just, um, you know, a gross simplification. And, you know, when we when we think about you know, farmers, like, who do we mean when we're talking yeah. about farmers? 
And so, um, you know, one aspect of that article was about trying to differentiate between different kinds of farmers. You know, mm. the, the majority of farmers in Ireland don't make their their livelihoods, their income from farming, from producing food. Yeah, you know, they re they rely on on farm payments and off farm sort of incomes. So there's a whole a whole set of kind of like a stratification, I guess, of uh, uh, that category of farmers, and then also who's responsible for, say, in this case, the emissions of thirty seven percent of emissions. Yeah, and then the second point was, as you were saying, is like even those farmers that are more commercially viable, who are sort of larger farmers, particularly the large dairy farmers. Even those farmers are part of these um, much bigger agri food systems, which we never hear about, never, never, you know, you know, never enter really into the media fray. Which is not just um, uh, the the kind of the co-ops of the processors like Glambia and and Kerrygold, but I'm also thinking about the inputs into farm production, into, yeah. into food production, things like feedstuffs, f chemicals, pharmaceuticals, finance. I mean, you know, uh, banks that give loans and have for, for, for decades. These are all parts of that agri-food system, which kind of is almost like a big edifice. And so the idea of just focusing on uh, individual farmers and the responsibility of individual farmers, or even like that the solutions could be of just encouraging or incentivizing changes in farmer behavior completely misses that they're operating within this much bigger set of drivers. Um, and if we don't talk about those drivers and identify those drivers and think about transforming that, that broader system, then I don't think we're really serious about, uh, you know, shifting away from uh, an environmentally destructive um, uh, model of, 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 of agricultural um, yeah, it's it's really really fascinating, and, and it's important that we discuss this. And of course, I have my own personal background in this, having you know grown up in a small town in Tremor, but we actually had a small dairy farm out the country. So I spent you know up to my um, early twenties before my father passed away, um, you know, working on the dairy farm. And I do remember you know the co-ops and you know, part of my whole social justice background is my father was very committed to the cooperative movement and. Um, fought against the corporatization of agriculture and the creation, the turning of the cooperative into um, these commercial bodies that then became Glanbia. And he was very much, and I remember the system, because you talk about this, uh, the system of, for example, um, you know, the decline in the number of dairy farms from the period of, you know, the 1980s, I think it was from 80,000 dairy farms to now less than 17,000, the decline of the small family farm and the model of agriculture that was developed, um, you know, through the 1990s in particular, um, and the, you know, the whole quota system, which benefited very large farmers and the way in which these large um, business type farms were promoted. And, you know, I remember seeing that and, you know, and being part of that. And so I feel a very strong affinity while I live in, in the urban sphere. And, you know, I feel a very strong affinity to agriculture and, and the rural um, environment. And but also I'm very aware that there is, as you're so right to point out, speaking of farmers as one homogeneous group is completely wrong. And also, as you say, it misses this whole um you know the agri food business the agri you know industry and how that is creating um you know the the type of because i was struck there thinking going why was that not talked about during the debates like why was the focus not on that and who was you know who is strongly influencing 
this narrative of, you know, oh, the farmers are being done down now, whereas in actual fact, we know it's a small, tiny number of farmers, as you say, who benefit from the current, you know, market system. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd say two points to that. I mean, one point, it was obviously, I couldn't get it in, in the length of that article, but it is probably important to say that it doesn't just begin with entry into the EEC in 1973 and those shifts in the 80s, particularly in the dairy sector with the corporatization of the the, the, the cooperatives. Um, you know, and you'd be familiar with Conor McCabe's book, Sins of yeah. Our Fathers, and people like Dennis O'Hearn and, and many others who've written about how, you know, the Irish agricultural sector sort of inherited from a colonial, you know, economic relation to Britain kind of carried on with with independence and that was mostly around beef and the exporting of live live cattle to to britain yes and so all you know through the 20th century there was a a favoring of the larger farmer straight from the beginning of the the you know fina gael the free state there was a favoring of that larger farmer and there were smaller farmers who basically were either you know um raising uh cows and fattening cows for the ranchers or they were just unable to make any livelihood and moved off the land and had to migrate. But that idea of like class within um, uh, within farming and agriculture in Ireland is not just from the seventies and eighties. It's got yes. a much longer history. Of course, it does. Yeah. Um, but and then a, a, another point I, I wanted to make about that in the nineteen eighties nineties, which I think is really interesting, also is that the shift from really the dominance of beef to dairy. Um, I think what that really sort of signals, and I mentioned this in the article, is the way in which the the farming uh, and food production, I guess, in in Ireland becomes subordinated to food processing and the ingredients industry. Yes. That's another thing that's not talked about. So I mentioned yes. the article that Ireland is now uh, 10% of baby formula, yes. is, is Ireland, which is 35% of our dairy production is for baby formula. If you add to that, if you go to Glambia's webpage or, or other of the, the co-ops, if you look at all the products they sell, a lot of protein supplements, you know, all these things which are basically taking the raw material of the, the milk and transforming it into all sorts of other products. And really, that's where a lot of the profits are generated. And that was what was already being recognized in the 80s and 90s by the co-ops, the processors, and by the state. The profits were not in the production of milk in farming, profits were in processing. And this is just a, a pet theory of mine, but I, I think it might be interesting to think about how in the 80s and 90s, you also had um, obviously the takeoff of foreign direct investment around pharmaceuticals, chemicals. Yeah. Part of that was uh, a promotion of, of uh, education, to so publicly funded education, and producing a workforce that would be trained for those types of industries. So chemical engineering, science and technology and so on. I don't know, maybe if there is a relationship between those things where really what you see in the 80s, 90s is that all that processing, that they're hiring chemical engineers. I mean, they're getting into those those areas which we most kind of associate with the knowledge economy. And in a way, the agricultural economy is, and, and the dairy particularly is inseparable from that knowledge economy because it's knowledge, science and technology applied to a raw product. That's where the profits are made. And again, if you look at Glambia and its its processing sites and who it hires, it's hiring graduates. That's who it's hiring because you know they are able to come up with new products, which is new I, markets and yeah. so on. Not about the milk. I mean, obviously, no, no, dairy I, I farmers think... make a lot of money from milk production, but it's not. 
at the point of the milk. It's a much longer commodity chain. Absolutely. And why this is really important, again, I think brings us back to the core of the question. And it was always a question within this debate. What is the purpose of agriculture in Ireland? You know, what is it actually doing? And because that was also missing as well, because there was all this talk about, and, and you know, you name it, but, you know, we're <laughs> the argument from the, and, and I don't want to call them the farmer's lobby, because again, the point is, the IFA we know represents the very large agri-industry as opposed to those small family farms and those other types who don't you know, make this massive money from the mass production of beef or mass production of dairy. But that, let's call them the agri-industry lobby, um, was making this claim that you know Ireland is feeding the world. Essentially, that was the point being made. But as you highlight... The feeding the world is producing the likes of, as you say, what, what was the figure you said in terms of the milk being produced to baby formula? It's 35% of, of Ireland's dairy production go, goes into baby and formula. No, baby formula, infant formula. Yes, it has a role in terms of, of course, as a supplement, you know, for mothers who, for whatever reason, are not able to breastfeed or at different points in child's life. But we know the best thing for children is breast milk. And yeah. in particular, in the developing world, where water access to water is um is not safe and makes children sick and i remember campaigning you know back in the early 2000s against nestle for the way in which they were trying to get um mothers in the developing world to take on and use baby formula and they were there was boycotts and everything because it was actually worse for them and yet we know a significant proportion of this is being dumped essentially yeah. of this produce so actually, it's not feeding the world. It's actually doing the opposite. Yeah. And I think another another thing, the argument that was made is that there's, it, it's that we're, we're supplying the demand, you know, and you'd be familiar with the whole demand supply, uh, you know, that this yeah. kind of nice liberal economics. But this idea that the demand is just there. Whereas again, yes. if you look at the policy, markets have been created for these Absolutely. products. And yeah. those markets have been created through uh, you know, the kind of trade missions that our ministers and, you know, um, uh, Enterprise Ireland, Board BIA, you know, they're, they're trying to access markets for the agri-food industry. So they're, 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 they're having trade agreements with, with China. I remember I worked in a, a cheese shop um, when I was doing my PhD and it was around a time where unpasteurized milk being used in cheese production was going to be banned. Yes, and there was a, yes. there was a, a resistance to it because obviously there's artisanal cheese producers and so on. And the reason that was coming in was not because of health. It was Simon Coveney at the time, I think, was Minister for Trade or something, and it was because China wanted to buy more dairy products from Ireland, but wanted to make sure they were completely safe. And seemingly, one of the conditions was that all dairy products would be pasteurized. And so this was going to be brought in. So it was nothing to do with the health of, 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 of people. I mean, you know, unpasteurized milk, small herds, that's, that's kind of been, you know, proven it's fine. But because of Chinese and because the, the amount of money involved in these trade agreements, it, you know, it's huge. So again, pushing back on that. And in the article, I make the point again about EEC, you know, Ireland was reliant on Britain, as we, we talked about with the cattle markets in the 20th century and before. But joining the EEC opened up European markets. Then the 80s, there was the wine lakes and the butter mountains. There was too much production. And then you see the general agreement on trade and tariffs, the World Trade Organization in the 90s, the kind of heyday of, of free trade. And all of these new markets opened in parts of the global south 
which was the dumping of these products, which then become new markets, like you say, for baby formula. So yeah. it is a once you start digging into it, particularly food, I mean, it's not even, you know, my area that I've done most research in, but when you start looking at food and tapping away, it is so globalized, so bound up with these, um, you know, networks and, and relationships of uneven global development. And, you know, uh, you know, the, some of the most, the most powerful and biggest sort of uh, corporations that are pushing and driving these things to sort of reduce that down to, 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 to farmers here. I mean, it's, 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 it's simplistic. And I, I mean, I'd even make that point with, you know, obviously I, I, I think we need to tra transform our agri-food sector and get away because of emissions and so on. But, you know, farmers also have a, a, a valid argument when they say, if we stop producing beef and dairy here, it will go somewhere else. They also, yes. that is a valid argument I yeah. mean, because it is, it is a, a, a competitive, uh, a global, um, you know, uh, uh, food system and food will be produced where it is, ch is cheapest and it will go somewhere else so you know unless we start tackling that too unless we start thinking about that and raising questions if we just focus on national sectors and emissions within us and we don't understand how it's part of these global integrated kind of systems then we're also doing ourselves a disservice even environmentalists you know um, and i think that's part of the problem is that because it's become so pointed becomes so um so polarized in a way that it, it's uh, it's hard to sort of disentangle, you know, points that are valid, you know, you know, that have, have some kind of validity that we need to take on board. I mean, you see what's happening in the Netherlands, maybe with the farmer protests. Those are there are real grievances, there are real concerns, and even though we've mostly just been discussing agribusiness, we also have to recognize that there are livelihoods at stake, rural economies at stake, and I guess. Um, I guess maybe we can get onto that now. No, I think you're absolutely right to raise that because I think it is part of the problem of that polarization um, of the discussion between, you know, farmers versus, you know, the liberal climate agenda, you know, and that's part of the issue on the side of environmentalists um, and, you know, all of us who are trying to promote <laughs> the, uh, the idea of the absolute transformation that's needed if we're going to be seriously trying and mitigate um, and reduce the worst impacts of what we're doing and radically transform our societies and economies to actually genuinely tackle climate change, that actually within that, you know, we do have to protect and realize, you know, as you say, rural economies are massively, and some more so than others, reliant on income from agriculture, that they are parts of our culture, parts of our, you know, um, you know people's identity, um, rural communities, you know, what they're built around. And, you know, you can't just ignore that and, and say, oh, that's just going to change. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, as, a, as a, you know, I have, I have family members who are farmers um, and I would talk to them and, and, you know, it's interesting us to understand more we need to is how many, as you say, of these farmers are not earning, you know, most of their income from the land and are what are called part-time farmers. And then you integrate in the discussion about, for example, food sovereignty, you know, and the idea that, you know, we can't even produce bread in this country anymore because we don't <laughs> grow enough wheat. You know, we look at oats, you know, you look at Flavins and what they're doing in Waterford in terms of you know, the brilliant production of porridge and, you know, oats, um, oats and what we could be doing. Mm. Um, and that, you know, if we had a discussion, proper discussion with farmers and rural communities and said, OK, we want to create a viable, you know, economy for you and a sustainable one. And that requires major shifts. 
what ways could we go about this? Farmers would have massive ideas and rural communities say, okay, well, let's convert, I don't know, a quarter or half of our land into tillage. Are we going to get a market for that? Yes. Okay. Well, let's build processing of that so we can create flour and we will subsidize it and subsidize it massively so that it is actually providing you an income. But that there was an absence of that sort of there was there was i'd say there's a few things i'd say there i mean one because i was actually just reading um rereading the sins of the fathers that chapter on agriculture and one of the things that he he talks about connor is about how the the the, the sort of the the understanding or the dominant approach to the development of the agricultural sector you know through the the 20th century after independence was a kind of trickle down model yeah the idea was that if you um if you improve the incomes of the larger farmers, the kind of yeah. ranchers and so on, that money will trickle down into rural communities. Um, that's not about providing um, incomes for more people, more livelihoods for more people, and diversifying that economy. It's about protecting the incomes or increasing the incomes of a few that trickles down, which is very familiar, right, in this of country. Course, yes. But yeah. I think that it's similar to what's happening now when, when you see um, IFA, for example, or, or other farmers saying that it's, it's vital for rural economies. It's still a trickle-down model. Yeah. Most, of, most people aren't making money through agriculture, but you have some bigger farm, and not just the farmers, as you said, anyone who goes to rural islands, especially in the summer, like, you know, the contractors, the, the balers, the, the, the fuel, the feed stuff, there is other ancillary industries and things, you know, they're buying inputs and so on. So that, that is real. That does sustain an economy. There's money spent, but it isn't but about... But if you think of marts, for example. Marts are marts gone, are yeah. the center of yeah. communities, you know, where yeah. farmers meet, where they, you know, and during COVID, that was a big thing. There was a big, you know, yeah. pushback around the closure of marts because they were the place where people met. So yeah. these are fabrics and... and, and they are. Yeah, but they're, And they're less and less, I guess. I mean, if you yeah. look again at those big, bigger rural towns and marketplaces and and um um and the marts i mean they have they've diminished except for a few i guess i mean not a huge amount of, but i guess they have they have diminished but i think this question about alternative forms of um of uh of food production and alternative livelihoods on on the land and making livelihoods work i really do think it's been missed particularly by the environmental thing side because the environmental side i think the emphasis rightly maybe is on emissions but beyond reducing emissions, I don't think they really care what happens next. Yeah, is is, is my take on it. Yeah. And again, I feel like I would be sympathetic with quite a lot of farmers and 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 you know rural communities who have a distrust because they don't really believe their interests are most at, at heart. You know. Yeah. And I I think that um you know the suggestions of diversifying, which is the argument that's been made since the nineties. So it's we we sort of try to. Um, bring in some restrictions or regulations on on dairy and beef farming, on commercial farming, and those farmers who can't compete should diversify. That's the argument made, made since the 90s, diversify yeah. into ecotourism, diversify into sort of eco-funded programs, whatever. Now it's solar energy. Farmers diversify into solar energy or forestry. or There's never, ever, ever an argument that they should really... Uh, uh, you know, be they could be supported in a in a in a meaningful, viable way to get into, like you say, alternative forms of, of food production. Yeah. Because what you're talking about there is not just um 
the kind of niche, I mean, obviously there's lots of small producers around the country. There's lots of really good initiatives to create like markets, people doing all sorts of interesting things, but to, to, to sort of make that a more meaningful option for a lot of farmers, especially young farmers, you're talking about what you say, like, like investment, building yeah. infrastructure, uh, building logistics, like, I mean, I, I've had some contact with um, community-supported agriculture, for example, you know, where you buy, you have a monthly subscription to a farmer. So for a year, yeah. you commit to buying food and you get a box of vegetables. The idea is it gives them food, some some financial security and you get the fruit and vegetables or whatever. But the, the people who are doing that here, like, they don't only have to grow the stuff they have to deliver it and do all of that stuff like it's impossible yeah. i mean it's yeah. so labor intensive to do a, a, like a kind of agroecological food production so labor intensive there needs and to so be help as well is all so of risky. those things so low, low like low interest loans like once you start thinking about it there are lots of policy sort of um i think uh, proposals that could be brought in there um the main one also land access i mean you know this from your own work around um you know land banking the value yeah. of land around building of housing you, you know we need to think about how that applies to rural as well i think where we're so locked into this idea and obviously this is going to be controversial with a lot of farmers but that it's private property and you know that that it's um the value of land is it goes up because there might be certain kinds of projects happening but if there was um state land and there is with quilcher bordemona you know other kinds of uh, state-owned or nationalized land which could be leased to farmers for lower much lower rates they could practice more social farming or agroecological farming you, you kind of take it out of the market if it has to be in the market it's going to be very difficult for farmers to practice agroecological farming against dairy farming or much more commercial so it's the same kind of principles i think apply and these kinds of arguments were made, um, you know, by Michael Davitt, by, you know, a lot of agrarian radicals in the late 19th century, early 20th century, that what needed to happen, you know, was to decolonize land or to think about a kind of land in, in, in the Irish Republic and, and rural sort of farming. It had to be uh, um, nationally owned, you yeah. know. And obviously today that seems crazy. But these are arguments made by food like La Via Campesina, food sovereignty, these kinds of questions, I think they have to at least be considered. Otherwise, if it's all going to happen within this very competitive, um, you know, globalized food uh, uh, system, you can't see it really taking off. It's always going to be very niche. I mean, who has access to the land? You know, yeah. it's really expensive to buy land. That's your main... And rent it. And rent it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. No, it's a really important question. And I think that... Again, you know, there's there's many ways of going about this, and I, and I really think it's brilliant that you brought that question into the public debate and public sphere. And I think that was so important because it was so missing. Because I was just, you know, listening to the media going on and on at this argument over two percent, you know, and wasn't it was going boring, to wasn't it? Two percent, or you know, twenty five percent, or twenty seven percent, and you're going, it's actually all just smoke and mirror stuff. Like it's theater. It's theater to distract from. You know, you were saying, you know, there's fundamental questions and, and, and in many ways, the environmentalists were missing it as well in terms of, as you point out, you know, those arguments about the rural economy and, and the, you know, the, the model of agriculture and the model of not just agriculture, as you say, but, you know, the agri-food industry and this question of food sovereignty and, and food sustainability and, and just the, you know, where we were going. And, and, and I think that it's... Um, the question of access to land and food production, I think, 
and sustainable food production. And, and as you say, in particular, in terms of, you know, cost of living now, and you, we see, you know, the input of, of uh, the cost of inputs, and that's not going to change, you know, in terms like the other the point is that, and as the heart of it is that the agri-food model, the, the corporate agricultural model is completely dependent upon fossil fuel inputs in various forms in terms of the the fuel that runs tractors. I know obviously you can move to electrical tractors and combine harvesters, you know, that will require a massive amount of money and investment. And, um, but you, you know, in terms of fertilizers, fertilizers is one of the, the chemical fertilizers is one of the main inputs in terms of um, making Irish product land productive. I remember um, on our farm, you could see the patches on the field, the bare patches, which didn't get the chemical fertilizer added. And you were looking at this field going, if I wasn't spreading this and you, we, you know, my, we would discuss it myself, and my dad, about how much fertilizer we we're going to spread on a field, um, you know, versus how much money you would get out of it. And you were saying, if we double the amount of chemical fertilizer, you know, would it double the grass? And in some instances it did, mm-hmm. you know, and so you talking like that's a core input again mm-hmm. into agriculture. And how do you move away from that? And I think, yeah, that that bigger picture of. I think food sovereignty of the um, question of what are we, you know, what is our land being used for? What is it producing? This, this, the rural economies, that that consultation with farmers, because again, this idea that you know, the IFA, they don't represent farmers in, in the broad sphere of it, do they? Uh, no, I mean, they, they represent the, the, the farmers that are, you know, able to make a, an income from what they're they're doing which is very few, not very few but it's the minority yeah um yeah. i mean i i think about because this question about who are the farmers it, when it first came to me i was doing some research it was around water um group water schemes yeah and uh you know these are you know um community owned managed water systems around rural ireland it's quite amazing you know that they're not on the public mains yeah it's partly to you know to do with the history of you know, the development of, um, uh, you know, the Irish state that certain areas were not linked up to these public infrastructures, which, you know, there there definitely is this longer sort of history of, of a rural urban, uh, you know, d- divide and uneven yeah. development, which you can map through access to infrastructures. But anyway, these group water schemes in rural areas, often in farming areas, and um, the question of water pollution is a key one, because it, it costs them more money to treat the water if the water is more polluted. Yeah. And at the same time, that pollution is coming from farmers who are on the scheme. So there's these contradictions which become much more acute um, in interesting ways uh, and much more visible in interesting ways. But um, as I was was doing that work, and it was kind of in Mayo and Monaghan and um, Roscommon, you'd often, this question would often come up about who the farmers were. And in, in, in Mayo, somebody told me, said, there was 500 farmers in the catchment that goes into this water source. Yeah. And of that 500 farmers, there was 10. And this person could name them. You know, this is local. This is Ireland, you know. Yeah. There was 10 dairy farmers that produced all of the problems. Yeah. And he wasn't saying it in a kind of, um, I hate these people. It was yeah. just that this is the way the farming works around here. There's 500 farmers. We, you know, we describe ourselves as farmers. We own land, we get our payments and we do a bit of maybe a little bit of beef farming or something, but there's 10 that I can name who would have over 200 cows, 300 cows, and they would be making decent money. But those same farmers, it might be their cousin 
you know, there's yeah. familial links and yeah. they also recognize what those farmers do for the local GA club, for the, like, you know, the local this, this, like you say, they're part of the local economy and all that work. I mean, why I find that so interesting is that they actually have a much more, um, uh, subtle, much more nuanced, um, uh, uh, discourse around these thorny questions. It's not environment versus farmer it's not you know rural versus urban they understand that there's agribusiness they understand that there's inequalities but they understand that to get through this would require also fundamental changes uh you know not just tinkering around the edges which is what we're, we're largely seeing and i think um i think that uh yeah i think that that that, that really you know brought it home to me about how 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 few there are who who are who are in, involved in kind of really commercial agricultural activity but 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 again it, it it brings a question of as well you know there is something so fundamental in us in terms of you know there is in our culture historically the land what it means and you know while on the one hand you talk about you know davit and the idea of the radical you know agrarians and you know there has been cooperative movements you know in our history that are trying to at somehow use land on you know the idea of it as being a commons and and there was and there are still commons throughout the country particularly on mountainsides and um and you know there was the mehel which is where farmers would work together and support each other so those those culture and that that memory is still there of land and what we're doing and producing for is not just purely about profit at some level for some industry but mm -hmm. because on the other hand the question is you know there is a certain pride as well if we are producing this food like look, this is our land producing this amazing thing like you know it's there is something amazing in, in seeing you know milk in particular being produced and you know from grass and you know this is what we're doing like this is an incredible you know material tangible achievement in, in the sense that you know um that, that is something you can feel. And, and that is something that's very powerful as well. And I think the, the question that's missing and is that, okay, we're producing it, but for again, why? Where is it going to? <laughs> and I think if farmers understood more as well where their actual milk was going and <laughs> could there be better uses for it and also better uses of what your land is actually producing because farmers want to produce something from their land. They're <laughs> not particularly, they don't want to necessarily produce twice as much milk as they're producing but if you know they want a relationship with their animals you know they want a relationship with their land they want it to be productive and so i think that question as well was also hugely missing in this debate and i think i mean i don't know uh, uh, enough about this but um you know i think if people think about farmers it's like why can't you switch from this to this why can't you switch yeah. from like as a as a as a as a as a, as a skillful um you know kind of expert activity you know farmers build up a lot of knowledge and expertise about growing grass like you said yeah. and that's partly because i don't know if you ever read the farmer's journal you know it's, it's all about grass maximizing yeah. grass the same with if you go to agricultural college it's still it's it's about learning these things i mean there might be an odd module in about sustainability but the the, the like going back to this question of where does this come from you know not just you know the the, the, the connection to land but the kind of the cultures around particular types of um, grass production, yes. you know, um, uh, uh, you know, it's not just the infrastructures and the processors. It's also about training. It's about if you're a kid who wants to go into farming, you go into agricultural college, then you've got Chagask, again, state funded. Where does all the research go? It all goes into better breeds, uh, grass production, you know, minimizing fertilizer. Where is the research into agroecology? 
where is the, the the training around what agroecology is or food sovereignty or these things and so once you start realizing that the the farmer that that individual farmer is the product of a whole set of um you know educational uh you know technical um you know market um you know state institutions and infrastructures will then to get to something different we need to be thinking at similar kinds of scale almost you know yes I, I, we can't just be saying you need to switch to growing organic vegetables now you, you can't yeah you can't just say that you, you know yeah. it, it's not gonna it's not gonna happen and it's unrealistic so like yeah like you say i mean re, re, i mean you know maybe that's something that i you know we need to do more or i need to do more as well is like it's happening in in the uk a little bit i think is coming up with you know concrete kind of um more concrete kinds of proposals around these sorts of things that other farmer organizations and i mentioned that in the article which are you know quite different to the ifa like talif bio that is linked with via campesina you know they very much talk about food sovereignty and agroecology but they're a relatively small group they're all farmers um, they're all working to do something different, but and they also try to input into policy and reform policy. But they're small, and I think that they could really do with you know more support. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And broadly on the question of you know, how do you think we could change this conversation around that? Like when you look at it, and yeah, how can we shift it to that much looking at that much bigger those bigger questions? Do you think? Well, I think I, I said this during your message before this. I mean, it's not just about. I mean, obviously, agriculture is is the biggest thing, food yeah. and food and and in in terms of land and and the rural kind of Ireland. But I think that there are a lot of other um, issues around land and rural Ireland that have started to surface more recently, like the turf, the turf, so called turf wars, for example, yeah. the ban on turf cutting. But you also see it with a large-scale energy infrastructure, so wind farms, battery farms, pylons. Um, you'll you'll see it with the offshore wind as well. There are um, forestry in Leitrim, gold mining in Leitrim, data centers down in Ennis. There, there seems to be, I mean, in the 80s, 90s, there was a whole raft of, of kind of rural environmental campaigns, you could call them. Yeah. You know, yeah. against which were against multinationals like pharmaceuticals, chemical companies. Then there was obviously Shell to Sea, uh, you know, which was massive. But I feel like there's another wave of that coming, and a lot of it is and has already started is around w what is being presented as climate action versus uh, rural people, and yeah. this this culture war of rural versus urban. And I think that my, I, for me at least, I feel like. Uh, one of the things that I am prioritizing is trying to drive a wedge between or into that that debate to say that it's not rural versus uh, uh, urban and it's not climate action versus sort of rural livelihoods or whatever. It's it is very much about thinking about how we can create like actual livelihoods on the land, whether it's around food production, whether it's around renewable energy, whether it's around like silviculture and forestry or all sorts of other things, which as you said, I think earlier, there are so many ideas and projects yeah. in, in these places, but they do not get the support they need. They don't get the attention they need. And as much as the, the culture wars is, a, is, is largely a fake culture war and it's, it's mobilized by particular interests, it is also a real... Um, error i think uh to um suppose that there aren't real grievances 
that there are not real grievances there, whether it's around farming and that, that it's going to hit their livelihoods and rural economies or large scale wind infrastructures, which I've done work around, that they don't sort of are not a form of dispossession in some way of, of, of people who are living there and trying to do different things. It can't just be dismissed as nimbyism or agribusiness interests. There are actual other grievances. And I think those grievances, if they can somehow be um, helped to be articulated in a more progressive direction, like food sovereignty, alternative forms of food production, what do we need to sort of cultivate that, foster that, or around energy? How can we develop alternative energy, which is actually for the benefit of, of people and Ireland and not, say, for data centers? And it's kind of corporate sort of uh, enclosure. I think that that's a real, um, what's the word, responsibility on, you know, people in the media, academics, activists, is to engage in those those sort of struggles, not dismiss them, to try to articulate them in, in more progressive directions. Because if we don't, they're going to get um, taken in, in regressive ways. And we've seen that, seen that all over you know, a kind of a, a more reactionary populism, you know, conservative. Um, and I think that that's, that's a real danger over the next 10 years, particularly. Um, I completely agree with you. And I, and I think it's, I think it's a really important uh, input into, you know, reshaping Ireland. And it's like, you know, it, it's almost like we do need to say we want to save rural Ireland, but we want to renew it and we want it, you know, recreate it in a way and take the best parts of it and sustain it. We want to sustain rural Ireland and keep the life in it. And even like, because you think it's all linked, like in terms of small towns, for example, you know, the withdrawal of, of the banks, for example, the bank branches, you know, the withdrawal of post offices, yeah. the decline of the local pub, like these are all, these all really matter to people. Mm. And the state has an absolute core role in, for example, reinvesting in rural areas. And I think, mm. even, for example, the issue of vacancy and dereliction mm. in rural towns and how it could be investing in retrofitting these homes, you know, breathing life, giving local people and saying, look, okay, this is being lost, but here, this is what yeah. we're gaining. And this is what you're gaining and what you can gain through this transition. And, you know, for example, <laughs> you think, you know, I know of, you know, farmers who are, might own, you know, hundred acres, but they're renting as other farms, farmers die off or renting now five, 600 acres. So actually the farm ownership doesn't really give us a sense of what the real yeah. um, intensification and decline narrowing of ownership. Like why, as you say, if, you know, you could have models whereby, you know, we're retrofitting, you know, refurbishing, rebuilding homes in rural towns and villages alongside giving people access to five acres of land in which they can, you know, grow their own agriculture. And also, you know, you're so right about the, the, the issue of the wind energy. Like that should all be community generated, like and or generated going back to Irish people here, not bloody corporate again, corporate owned. Like again, these factors really matter. And the data centers, of course. Like you're going, why would people agree to, you know, all this development which they see it just going to data centers for mm. corporations? Well, and, and get, even in terms of agriculture, they're going, Why are we making all these cuts when it's just going to bloody data centers? Yeah, well, I'll give you one. And again, I, don't, I mean, I, I'm not jumping on the back of environmentalists. It's it's more about certain blind spots, I think, and yeah, no, no, where the focus is. But, but we're both environmentalists. We're both environmentalists. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, like there's rightfully a lot of focus on the agricultural sector because of the amount of emissions. 
But I also think it's not fair to, to just compare agriculture to energy or electricity and to transport because they are livelihoods in agriculture. Whereas yeah. if you look at energy, there's a huge amount of profits to be made out of renewable energy. Like yeah. there's a lot, the wind industry lobby is pushing for higher energy. targets. So, um, but the thing about the data centers and energy in, in the Midlands, I haven't seen anything about this yet, but hopefully I'm going to be writing something soon with a, with Pat uh, Brody, who I do a lot of work on this. In the Midlands, so you've had this um, unjust transition, you know, which has been going on since the 90s, closure of the peat industry. A lot of Midlands communities sort of um, de-industrialized, essentially. It's it's not just recent. But uh, Borden and Mona have now rebranded um, themselves as a climate solutions company. So it's yeah. a semi-state company, still publicly owned. I mean, it's owned by the, the state. They own huge land banks, maybe 2%, I think, of the, the country. Quilcher is 7%. So together, they're nearly 10% of land. Wow. publicly owned so this i mean the, the land board Mona own a lot of that's cutaway bog you know it's it's kind of um it's it's somewhat um what's the word it's kind of post-industrial like landscapes but one of the projects they have on seven thousand acres of land across offaly westmeath i think there's another county maybe kildare is to build an energy park and you can you can look it up on the website and this energy park is going to have a data center wind farm, solar farm, battery storage, distribution center, which is like for Amazon, you know, distribution hub, or yeah. it could be for Tesco, um, all located there. And it has a map of it. So effectively what this is a vision of is like an automated closed circuit of some of the largest, you know, private companies, like big tech, yeah. big energy, big retail, hosted on public land, which is not going to provide many jobs beyond the construction and then crappy jobs in, in the retail, whatever, you know, poorly paid. Um, and this is all happening under, without any scrutiny, you know, this is Bordemona. This is, a, it was set up in 1946 with a remit to be about regional development, providing jobs and, and, and national energy security. And now they are using this um, huge land bank and they're building these kinds of projects, which are all about foreign direct investment. They're all about the kind of commercial returns. And I feel like these types of projects are happening again around rural Ireland, different contexts that need to be, need, you know, are not getting the attention that they need to. No, I, I think that's a fascinating. I, I wasn't aware of this at all. What, what stage are they at in this planning? Um, as far as I know, that they've probably. Um, I don't think they've put in for planning permission. I think they're at a stage where they are probably looking for investors and they are in some kind of consultation. I know they're in consultation with local because I went up to visit and I met a guy and somebody from Bordenamon had just been in to talk to him. So they're they're at the stage where they're talking to people who live in the area. Um, the obvious thing would be that actually on public land, you would be developing public um, energy generation so that it could reduce people's electricity costs exactly. and you could provide, you know, small and medium enterprise, you know, uh, hubs that developing, you know, renewable technologies and also renewable run mills that can mill yeah. flour and oats and produce, you know, set up a flavins in in Offaly that promotes, you know, the, there's massive land in Kildare as well. And Offaly yeah. that could be growing wheat and oats that, uh, you know, or other production of food that they should be, I, I just. Well, it's I'm the thing is, it's exactly thing. that is that it's, it's that the, the possibilities are kind of endless. Well, not endless, but there's a lot of possibilities. Whereas what and it gets shrunk down to, what it gets shrunk down to is, 
oh, are you are you against renewable energy? You know, are you for or against renewable energy? Yeah. It's like, no, of course we need renewable energy, but there are many different ways we can develop it. And the way that it is being developed at the moment, which is no surprise given the last particularly 20, 30 years of, of Irish state policy around FDI and private developer-led projects, is in a way that is not going to be for the public interest. It's it's not going to be in the public interest. It's not going to be about harnessing our resources to reduce costs, to meet our climate targets and transport and heating. It's going to be for for for, for other interests. And I I think um I think I think again it's partly because of an urban rural maybe focus where a lot of researchers and activists tend to be, but th- those types of developments are not getting as much scrutiny as they as they that I think they should be. Um, yeah, I really. <laughs> blown away by that one but i think you're right and you make the point that you know the you know activists academics those who are progressive broadly on the left you know like ourselves that there's a failure to engage with these questions of you know rural development of obviously talk about you know that transition that's happening and just this assumption that you know what's what's best is we know the change is required but actually the way those changes happen really matter for you know, actually convincing people. And because, you know, if people are feel completely um, turned off by this and alienated, they will turn to other forces who are completely the anti-climate agenda and all that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I guess, again, I don't want to completely simplify things. Or, I mean, obviously, there are different interests at play that block particular developments, you know, yeah. like yeah. a wind farm. I mean, of course, you know, if these technologies need to be built, there, there may be a need for compulsory purchase or there may be for these to have strategic planning, the same with housing or whatever it is. Yeah. But if you go to Leitrim, if you go to Kerry, if you go to Donegal, you talk to people, as I have, who are, are, are resisting some of these developments, they are not... Um, they're not doing it simply because of like their property value, or they're not doing it simply because of the scenic view. They actually have a, 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 a very sophisticated um, sort of political economic, I would say, analysis of how these types of infrastructures are being dumped in the same places they have always been dumped. Yeah. You know, that the reason why Leitrim has gold mining, Sitka spruce plantations and industrial wind farms is not because that's always the best place for them to be, but because, you know, Leitrim is poor, you know, yeah. it's and I, I'm just, I, I got to go back there. I just Googled while you were talking there, cause I am blown away by the board of Mona thing. Um, and I see there that it is into in September last year, the announcement was board of Mona to develop Midlands large scale renewable energy park, which sounds great. Doesn't it? It sounds good. Yeah. But then when you look at the detail, um, three on 3000 hectares, of its land bank, three thousand hectares huge, of public yeah. land in Mead, Offaly, and West Mead. The Bordemone Energy Park will be developed across peatlands, um, and potentially here we go. What it says, yes, data center energy. Bordemone expects that the energy park will be attractive for industrial and high demand energy users, such as large scale distribution facilities and data centers, as the co located approach is more sustainable. Which, of course, as you know, is as you're saying is Amazon data centers. Is that what we should be using our public land for? Public? Yeah. And, and I think that you've seen, so, so the, 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 I think the case has been made um, and the government have kind of pushed it to air grid effectively to make the call, but data centers are not going to be developed so much within the Dublin region anymore because of the squeeze on the grid. So the direction of travel is to move data centers to rural areas 
And one of the ways to make that more attractive to data center providers and developers is to bundle them with renewable energy generation. Yeah. Because otherwise they might not want to go there. And then Ireland loses its sort of, you know, for whatever reason we want to be competing for data center uh, expansion. But we do, it seems. That's government policy. So um, one of the things is to build. So Board Mona has that energy park, but there's another project up in Mayo in Kalala where they want to link a biomass uh, energy plant with a wind farm with a possible data center um, down in Ennis as well. And I, I think what you see then, and you know, the, the argument could be made is, oh, isn't that great? Like data centers and renewable energy. I mean, we need to get them off fossil fuels and so on. But effectively what you're talking about there is like a closed loop. Yeah. Like an actual closed loop between renewable energy generation and, um, you know, these, you know, the largest, um, some of the largest companies in the world. I mean, Amazon Web Services, um, you know, is that. And exactly like you say, we, you know, we face these really ambitious targets by 2030 to electrify everything, you know, electrify transport, electrify heating, electrify stuff on farms. I mean, you know, All it's massively homes. complicated. It's already complicated, but it's massively complicated by giving over some of the best sites and giving over this infrastructure to to data centers. It really does question the 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 approach now. And, and listen, Paddy, I really appreciate you giving the time. Um, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation and I really enjoyed it. And I think that uh, I know our listeners will will get a huge amount out of it as well. And it's a conversation we absolutely are right. We need to have a lot more about. Um, and it's something that is close to my heart. Like I am, as I said, I do have a lot of connections, family live in rural Ireland. And um, I understand that, you know, the identity within it, the, the, the meaning of it, it's not, you know, meaningless. These, these are communities and, and the, the need to sustain it and um, to give people a future there. And there is so much that could be done. Um, so let's let's keep having the conversation, highlighting yeah. it, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it, Rory. Um, great to be on the the podcast, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll meet either off the podcast or on the podcast again <laughs> soon to talk more. Absolutely, absolutely. That's uh, uh, Professor Patrick Bresnan from the Department of Geography at Minute University. There, you can check out his work um, in Minute University on the website, publications, um, and also the article he wrote for the Irish Examiner there last week on agriculture and future ones as well in terms of the big changes that we need to make but most importantly ways that can as we said sustain rural ireland and um help a broader um economic development sustainable development across new models of agriculture um and rural development so listen thank you so much everyone for listening we really appreciate um all of you who have been sharing around the podcast and social media and commenting on them it's really really appreciated it helps promote them helps more people hear the ideas here listen to the conversations um thank you so much to all of you making the effort to do that as i said we do really really appreciate it and of course as always to our patrons who keep this show on the road to help us to cover the cost of production this is an independent media podcast produced by Tony Groves or Tortoiseshack Media. If you can become a patron of Reboot Republic, go over to patreon.com forward slash Tortoiseshack. Sign up for whatever you can each month and help, as I said, keep this podcast on the road. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you all very, very, very soon again. <laughs>